0: patient. Say the word patient. This is not a subject. It's not an individual. It's not a criminal. It's a patient. And when you start thinking about it like that, you will monitor these people appropriately after using the interventions that you've used and understand that the only right place for this person is a hospital via ambulance.
1: This episode of EMS One Stop is brought to you by Lexapol, the experts in policy, training, wellness support and grants assistance for first responders and government leaders. To learn more, visit lexapol.com. That's l-e-x-i-p-o-l.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the EMS One Stop. Well, this is actually an accidental podcast. I wasn't planning on producing this particular show. But you see, once in a while, I write for Police One on health-related matters, and I was asked by the editor to go and interview Dr Farouk Mechri, who is the Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at the University of Texas Southwest. The reason I was interviewing Dr Mechri is because he was about to present at IACP, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, annual conference in Dallas, with the subject title, Management of the Acutely Agitated Behavioural Health Emergency, a Patrol Nightmare. And after a few minutes of chatting to Dr. Mekri, I realised his answers would make a superb podcast. So in addition to writing the article, which is attached in the show notes, you can hear his words. I began by asking Dr. Mekri what his main takeaway points were from the conference session.
0: Sure. So uh, in a nutshell, the 30,000 foot view or the bluff that I like to call it the bottom line up front. Uh, so the, the really the four points that they should take away is in in speech and in writing, your words matter. How you describe these individuals matters. Uh, you have to understand that this the physical restraint, the act of physical restraint, weight on the body, weight on the chest, it causes positional asphyxiation is dangerous and it can kill people. Point number three is that, ironically, a lot of people are afraid to use medications for management, but chemical sedation for medication management saves lives. We'll talk about the data that supports that statement. And the last thing is that they really need to understand, and I'm going to stop the lecture and say everybody in the room, say it with me, patient, say the word patient. This is not a subject, it's not an individual it's not a criminal, it's a patient. And when you start thinking about it like that, you will monitor these people appropriately after using the interventions that you've used and understand that the only right person,
1: the only right place for this person is a hospital via ambulance. That will be powerful, actually. it be interesting to see how that goes goes in the room or, or goes on the day, you know. As we as you know,
0: and we talked a little bit about my background, I, I have the unique and, and very fortunate ability to look at this from about three different perspectives. I have been an EMT before in college. Uh, I I started there as a basic and then I kind of became an in-charge, a field supervisor. Mm -hmm. Uh, Continued in EMS for several years and then went over to the police side, became a police officer in 2013 with the Dallas Police Department uh, and did all of my field training and initial patrol work in Southeast Patrol, which is our highest crime rate area. And we would see a lot of these individuals that we called signal 46s or, or crisis patients. Uh, behavioral health crisis patients. And then, of course, I went to medical school, residency in emergency medicine, came back, and now in this role in the city of Dallas, I get to kind of apply all of that. Uh, This lecture really was 15, 16 months of deep dive into behavioral health emergency patients uh, and understanding some of my own biases and probably a lot shared by my emergency medicine colleagues, um, paramedics, even terms that we use that are lightning rods for the media, terms that aren't really uh, based in true evidence-based science. And to give you a perfect example, Rob, if I was to ask any emergency physician, define tachycardia for me, right? 90% of them will say a heart rate over 90, a heart rate over 100. Or I say define hypoglycemia for me, and they say a blood sugar under 80, right? We all have definitions that we've agreed upon that are normal, Uh, definitions that we've agreed upon that are abnormal. I talk a little bit during this lecture about the term excited delirium and how that's become very popular in the media, especially in the last few years, and how I don't believe in it. And when I say that statement, usually it raises a lot of eyebrows, uh, and everybody kind of stops, and they're like, how can an ER doctor sit here and say he doesn't believe in excited delirium? When I myself two, three years ago said excited delirium is a thing, And we need to be ready for these patients. But what I was really saying at that point in time without realizing it is that behavioral emergencies, behavioral health emergencies are a thing, and it can happen from a variety of different reasons. And I don't expect the police officer on the scene to know what that reason is. I don't expect them to sit there and do a diagnosis and check blood sugars and oxygen levels. I want them to know in the grand scheme of things especially in my area, how does the Texas health code define a crisis in a, a patient who's in a behavioral health crisis? And what is your role in that chain of, like we say in ACLS, chain of survival? Um, what What are you supposed to do here? What questions do you need the answers for? What do you not? Who do you need to call to help you? And then where does this individual go afterwards? It is, a, it is very complex. Um, I usually start off the lecture by saying, we don't send our paramedics and first responders and police officers out into the field without some basic cardiac training, CPR training for cardiac emergencies. We don't send them out into the field without basic trauma training for gunshot wounds, for, for massive hemorrhage. So why are we sending them out into the field to deal with these complex behavioral health emergencies without the appropriate behavioral health training?
1: I mean, there's a number of interesting points you've raised there. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. You use whatever your code word was for a behavioral health, mental health crisis. Again, mm-hmm. there's such a range of patients' titles. In California, they're simply 5150s. We've, did, mm-hmm. we've, we've reduced it to a code number like you have right. a code number. With that, that just kind of gives you, oh, God, here we go, another 5150. Oh, God. Another mm-hmm. thing, love, love, love. Exactly. And you start off almost on the downward curve of this kind of pieced that's taken you in the wrong direction before you even Correct. get there, and that, that, that's a point that I think you just raised. And I've kind of gone, Ooh, yeah, you've got a you've got a good point there.
0: And and I try to emphasize to them during the lecture um, when when we go through our objectives. I say, let's talk a little bit about rec- recognizing behavioral health emergencies. Uh, what does that person look like? Yep. Let's talk a little bit about without boring police officers. This lecture is kind of. Um, created to be able to give to healthcare professionals, police officers, firefighters, EMTs, paramedics. I can tailor it to the level of their education. So if I have someone interested in the true pathophysiology of what's going on, we talk about it. But in a group that it doesn't matter as much, we talk a little bit more about the high-risk features that you would see in in behavioral health patients Um, and then those management strategies. Uh, there, There are cases under review that I can't talk about openly yet, Um, but to, to paint a larger 30,000 foot picture, we had a, uh, recent death in custody where I talked to the paramedic and I said, when were you worried about this individual? And they said, when I saw this, this, that, or the other, when they stopped breathing. And I said, do you know, when I was worried about this individual, probably 37 seconds after I started seeing the initial body camera, because they had five out of the six high risk features and risk factors to make me think this person has a high, a, a high risk of a bad outcome. And if you walk onto the scene of a Signal 46 or a 5150 with your brain already turned off, oh, this is another crazy person. I don't want to deal with this. This isn't even my role. Why don't I have the paramedics dealing with this? You're more prone to make those mistakes and not pick up on those cues where the ne- the hair on the back of your neck should stand up and say, there's a lot of things here that make me concerned that this person could have a bad outcome.
1: So give me your escalator answer, right, on what are those five things that a cop should know when approaching a patient in crisis behavioral health? Again, we've got to work out the title for this, but uh, as they're approaching this patient, what are your five things to look for?
0: Yeah, so when we talk about our red, red flag symptoms for law enforcement, for police officers walking on scene, if this person has a known psychiatric condition, or close friends and family members around are telling you this person has a psychiatric condition, yeah. schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, suicidal ideation, depression, red flag number one. Right. If this person has a known history or a, a, appears to be under the influence of any drugs, specifically stimulating drugs, cocaine, methamphetamine, another big red flag for police to be aware of, because this person is already going to be in a different state of mind. And potentially a different physiologic state their bodies ramped up as i i equate it to saying they just ran a marathon and now you're stopping them dead in their tracks um, having a violent history or a history of similar previous signal 46 exposures is also very high risk if you've come to this person before um, i think that stands to reason we understand that the more law enforcement interactions you have with somebody the higher the chance of something bad happening in law enforcement custody If I've never been arrested, I have a very low chance of having a bad outcome when a police officer is involved with me. But if I've been arrested 20 or 30 times, every single one of those times being a struggle, of course, there's something bad that can happen. Uh, Abnormal vital signs, very fast heart rate, very fast breathing, a very high blood pressure. uh, All of those are bad, bad signs. I know we don't have a blood pressure cuff for law enforcement to walk around and put it on somebody who's swinging, fighting, and biting. Um, But looking at somebody, seeing them be very sweaty, diaphoretic, speaking fast, those are all bad signs. This person is already in in a ramped up physiologic state or an adrenergic surge, as we like to call it. And then altered mental status, as we learned early in law enforcement, a lot of our compliance techniques whether they be physical presentation uh verbal commands or even physical restraint a lot of those re- depend on a person having clear conscience and having a a clear capacity to communicate with you and if this person is already in a sense of altered sensorium in an, an altered mental state they're not going to be compliant with any of those compliance techniques
1: you raised two questions and from what you just said firstly there's clearly a responsibility of the dispatch center to pass on as much information as possible particularly around the how do we know this person not that we always take names right but do we know this person have we had any interactions before is this an address of concern etc so the officer is armed with as much information as possible Um, that's point one and then point two of course we then get to the point where there may have to be some sort of restraint. And obviously you're going to talk about that in your session. So what are you going to tell folk about restraint?
0: Yeah, Um, I think that's an excellent point you bring up. This is part of that chain that we need to work on with dispatch because it's, as you're familiar with the Swiss cheese model, everything has to go wrong for a person to have a bad outcome. And in these particular situations, a lot of things can go wrong. And there is a lot of miscommunication initially when we listen to police dispatch tapes. We don't have all of the information a lot of the time when one officer is dispatched to this type of call, they need to recognize immediately, I need more help. I think the safe number of officers for a true behavioral health emergency is not less than five. And in the Dallas Police Department, we we also subscribe to that. Typically, you have to have four or five officers on scene, ideally one supervisor, Um to answer your question, when we talk a little bit about the physical restraint aspect of it in the lecture, what I say is start thinking about this in terms of Lego pieces and a multidisciplinary approach. Uh, When you have this person in front of you who you've already identified as on the edge of the scale, the right-hand most edge of the scale of calm to agitated and fighting, there's no magic. There's no secret. They're going to need to be physically restrained. I'm, I'm sorry if they expected me to come into the room and say something else. It's just not realistic. If someone is swinging a danger to themselves, a danger to others, potentially has a weapon, we have to restrain that individual. But we do it for the minimum amount of time necessary in a coordinated fashion with EMS arriving on scene or already on scene, ready to move into that next phase. And that next phase is what saves people's lives. And this is, again, a few people have a hard time understanding why is the chemical sedation. And and Rob, I'm very, very cognizant of my words. I choose the words carefully. Physical restraint, temporarily, chemical sedation for medication management. We never do chemical restraint. And I talk about that in the lecture. There's no such thing as chemical restraint. And if you put that in your documentation, you're opening yourself up to a lot of liability.
1: Right. And, and, and another trigger you just raised, of course, when we send a crew and a team to a cardiac arrest, right, we send the supervisor, the supervisor doesn't push hard and fast, doesn't say stand clear and press the button, the supervisor is there actually running the code, actually code, I hate the word code, because code means it's come some sort of cryptic mystery, it should be protein, <laughs> anyway, right, so he's, so therefore I'm assuming that a supervisor or a senior patrol officer, someone, is also standing off watching, supervising, and and ensuring orderly conduct right
0: absolutely i think crowd management scene management is a big component of this as we know time distance shielding that's what gives us time as as many many officers subject matter experts have said before the faster you get knee deep into something the less time you have to react and think about the situation so if I have a large crowd gathering around, somebody needs to take care of them, push them away, give us the time and distance that we need. If you have a senior patrol officer or especially a supervisor on scene, yeah, that individual needs to stand back and say, my, my patrol officers are going to approach this individual in a coordinated fashion. Patrol officer A will take the right arm, B will take the left arm, C will take the right leg, et cetera, et cetera. Then... As soon as we get the handcuffs on, they are rolled to their side in a recovery position, sat up, and we bring EMS in as quickly as possible. And there's other tools we can use to keep everybody safe, and that is the priority. The priority is keep, keep the patient safe, keep the public safe, then keep us safe.
1: Let's take a break here and have a quick word from our sponsor. Lexapol empowers first responders and public servants to best meet the needs of their residents safely and responsibly. Serving more than 2 million public safety and government professionals in over 8,000 agencies and municipalities, Lexapol offers a range of solutions that includes policies, training, behavioural health resources, news and analysis, and grant assistance services for law enforcement, fire rescue, EMS, local government, and other agencies dedicated to public safety. To learn more, visit lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L dot Thinking about the legal aspects, of course. when yeah. we look at some of the cases that have uh, drawn attention. Right, so in, mm-hmm. in Colorado, particularly, that kind of okay, the medic's on the scene. Just give him a, just give him something. Says the cop to, mm-hmm. uh, to 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 sedate him or to you know to reduce his level of consciousness.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: That, of course, is a big no-no. But what do you right. have to to that? So definitely a slippery slope.
0: And what I tell people is. Uh, I have the most familiarity with the city of Dallas, the state of Texas, but let's say the, the case that you referring to, or maybe not even directly, but the case that you described perfectly is, is Elijah McLean. And we talk a little bit about that in the lecture, which here's this 22 year old child and he's walking down the street listening to headphones. He's not really aware of his surroundings. And, and someone says there's this child or there's this black male acting erratically in the street, walking down the street and police show up. They apply physical restraint. They don't know what's going on. They heard that there's a a potential threat and they act and they say he's acting erratically. He's acting erratically quick. Give him and the unfortunate medication. That's the scapegoat here was ketamine in Aurora, Colorado, and the paramedics have not done their own assessment and they give him the ketamine. And then what happens? Then he stays on the ground. Law enforcement are on top of him while the ketamine is working. The person's becoming more and more disoriented more and more sedate, and we're still applying all of that physical restraint. So the most important thing is when the paramedics arrive on scene, they have to do their own assessment. They have to make sure the pieces fit. Because once you put that medication in, you can't take it back. And and yes, it might take a minute. It might take two minutes. But I would much rather, and it's much easier, to defend the actions of my providers when they're acting in the best interest of the patient, and they can articulate that this was a medical emergency. Uh, If, if this, if you walk on scene and the person's already calm, or you walk on scene and they're redirectable, or, or you have had maybe the option of saying they're not on a scale of one to 10, a 10, they're a five. Let's start with a lower dose of the medication and maybe not intravenously, maybe intramuscularly. Let's see how they react to that. Now, if, if the case is that you've gone into a situation, You're taking the words of law enforcement. You've done a little bit of an assessment and you provide a lot of medication to this individual and sedate them. The immediate next step, once that person is somewhat stable, is cardiorespiratory monitoring. Uh, And for police officers, what I would say is trust your paramedics and EMTs to do their job, let them do their job, and understand that there's going to be a lot of stickies and tubes in the nose and heart monitoring and blood pressures taken, and, and they need to do that. That is that is an absolute requirement because these patients then are at very high risk for cardiovascular collapse after all of the struggle, and we need to see the warning signs.
1: And actually, hopefully, that will come back to your you know mantra, repetitive mantra that if whether you're a cop or an EMT, it's the P word, the patient. Yes, you're a patient to everybody, so hopefully that that kind of helps things. We've talked about you know restraining the patient. The legal aspects what are you gonna tell what are you gonna tell your police officers in the room about the legal implications or the aspects of that?
0: You're right. Uh, that's a that's a great question and one I think that they're gonna be very uh they, they're gonna to want to know the answer to that, very attuned to uh, I saw you catch yourself too. I'm proud of you. You said chemical restraint, chemical chemical sedation for medication management. You're learning. You're
1: I did. I was going to edit out if I, if I ever use this in a recording, but uh, no, <laughs> absolutely sedation. But again, you know, I've asked you a question. If I was asking this, if I was asking a lawyer this question, your answer would be it depends. So are you going to give me a depends answer or what do you think? I, I think what I would say is as far as I've seen
0: so far, the cases that we've reviewed in Texas to this day, I have never found a police officer that was tried criminally or civilly because they were trying to do the right thing for the patient and taking them into emergency detention for their own benefit. The the police officers on scene, as I did myself before medical training, get caught up a lot in the letter of the law instead of the spirit of the law. And when they say, "Ooh, this person, it says right here, suicidal ideation. Or, or voiced suicidal ideation or attempted suicide. I, I don't know, doc. I don't know. I can't, I don't, I don't think I can do a mental health warrant. I don't think I can take this person into emergency custody. I don't know if this counts as a, as a true emergency crisis. And I say, look at the Texas health code. You know, I, I don't, I don't have a lot of the, the rest of the health codes in other states, um, not memorized, but familiar. But in, te- in the Texas Health Code, it says emergency behavioral health conditions are any conditions without regard to the nature or the condition in which the opinion of a prudent layperson. And I would say that a police officer is maybe even better than just a, a prudent lay, But even just a prudent layperson possessing an average knowledge of health and medicine requires immediate intervention or medical attention without which the members or that, that individual in question would present an immediate danger to themselves or others. That's all you need. You walk on scene. You think this person's in a crisis situation and you think that they would have a bad outcome if we didn't intervene immediately. So police officers need to know that the spirit of the law is there to protect them. And as long as they are working um, with other emergency providers and first responders to do the best thing for this individual, they're going to be protected. And I will protect I will I will be that subject matter expert that stands up in the in court and says, this person did what they thought was in the best interest of this patient. They tried to help this patient.
1: Well, it's a patient, and therefore the cop becomes the ultimate Good Samaritan. Right. What you just described is as simple as a Good Samaritan law. So when you leave your police officers in the room from this lecture, what are you going to be? Let's do a Corey Slovis. Right? What are your five top recommendations <laughs> slash takeaways? Right. Uh, I think the five takeaways, the
0: Corey Slovis of this lecture will be the bluff. Let's remind ourselves. Words matter. How you talk to the person on body camera, on camera in the corner of the convenience store, the school, wherever you are. Words matter in your documentation and on your body camera. Physical restraint for long physical restraint kills. We have to be minimizing our physical restraint. Chemical sedation for medication management saves, right? Monitor, monitor, monitor this patient.
1: I think uh, Dr. Slovis has some serious competition now. That was good. <laughs> Thank you, sir. That was good. If people want to follow you and keep up with you, how can they do that?
0: I try to make it very hard to follow me on social media for obvious reasons. Uh, I'm always available to answer questions. We'll leave an email, and you can always feel free to reach out to me, farook.maycreek at utsouthwestern.edu. That is my full-time job uh, as an assistant professor at the, at the medical school. Uh, and in the hospital. But a lot of my social media accounts, I tend to keep very private. uh, And I don't really share a lot of information in those contexts. So I I try to keep the education separate. Maybe I should think about creating an educational Twitter handle.
1: Perhaps you should. And uh, after what you've just told me, I think it's a great idea. And uh, thank you. And thank you, Dr. Farouk Mekri, thank you so much. Um, This has been enlightening. It's quite an unexpected podcast. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter at UKRobL1, also over on LinkedIn. Uh, This has been EMS One Stop. I've been Rob Lawrence. Until next time, bye for now.